Mac Power Users, Episode 253, Life on Mars. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing great, David. How are you? Great. Uh, we have an excellent show plan for you today. This is one I've been looking forward to. We're going to have Dr. Ross Lockwood, who's going to come in and talk about life on Mars or something like it. But uh, close. You know, before we get there, we have a big announcement we'd like to share with the audience, and that's that we're moving. Yes. <laughs> yes, we long, are. Long, dramatic pause. Uh, yeah. So David and I made the decision uh, to move Mac power users uh, and we're going over to Relay FM. So if you want to find us, uh, this show will be the last official show that we publish over at 5x5. Five five. Uh, and, and going forward, you'll be able to find the show over at Relay.FM slash MPU. Now, most of you, the feed should redirect automatically. But um, that is not as smooth a process as it likely should be. So we, we really encourage you to all resubscribe to the new feed. Um, this is really important, and we're going to pester you about it for a little while because we really don't want to lose you as listeners because at some point this old feed may stop. So uh, you can do it now. You can do it when you're done listening to the show. Uh, but you can resubscribe to the new show over at Relay.fm slash MPU. And that address for the new show is Relay.fm slash MPU slash feed. Uh, you can resubscribe to that show and whatever your favorite podcaster of choices. Uh, and you will see our entire back catalog there. Probably it won't automatically download the whole episode's back catalog. You may get a few old episodes, uh, but it is really, really important that you resubscribe to that new feed. Have I mentioned yeah, I, that it's really important, David? Yeah, I think we'll probably mention it for a while because we don't want to lose you. But the uh, uh, otherwise, the show is going to continue, uh, as always. Uh, MacPowerUsers.com site is going to redirect soon to the, the new location over at Relay. Um, and you will be able to find the old shows there, like we said. Um, so what does this mean? It means that you're going to get the same great content as always. Uh, the show is going to be produced exactly the same, but we're just going to be on a different network. Uh, we're still going to have the same quality production. We're still yeah, going to be. In fact, we're taking Mark Miles with us. I should say. <laughs> we're taking our editor. Um, the, the, we're going to have the live shows will continue. In fact, they're going to be streamed on Relay. And the next show is on May 9th because uh, Katie's got plans. The first yeah, I got to go to a wedding. Night. Yeah, my she's aunt's gonna, getting married. She's got married. places to be. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, it's it's not going to be a big deal for you as listeners. We're just changing networks and we do need you to resubscribe uh, before leaving. Uh, I wanted to take a moment, and Katie, as well, to thank Five by Five, Dan and Hattie and everybody over at Five by Five, their colleagues and friends. And uh, they've been very supportive of us throughout our run on Five by Five. And even uh, Dan has been so supportive in our move to Relay. He's just been a complete gentleman about it. And we're we'll be forever appreciative and thankful for him yeah we're not absolutely i i echo everything that that david has said and um dan has been immensely helpful with with mac power users and getting us everything that we needed and we we started mac power users as an independent show um dan was very supportive of allowing us to move over to five by five uh we we leave as an independent show we remain an independent show over on on relay um, and Dan was very supportive of that. So I just say thank you to him and to Hattie uh, and to everybody over at five by five as well. We're uh, we're in it for the long haul with the Mac power users, both of us. I mean, this is one of the most satisfactory things I've done in my life and I want it to continue. 
Uh, we're fans of what's going on at Relay, and it just seems like the right move for us at this time. So we're going to go ahead and pull the trigger and move the show over there. Um, I hope you come with us. Uh, we really would like to have you. And uh, like I said, we've got many big plans as the year continues. We've got some great guests lined up. In fact, um, just the next I guest even, is, a, is a good yeah, one. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. All, we've got some it. great, we've got some great stuff coming. And, the, so, and then the, the next show after that, and then the next show after that, we actually got the next three shows, uh, our first three shows on relay planned. And they're they're I, I just think, I think we've really gone, if I may say above and beyond. All right. Well, so. check it out. Uh, enjoy this show and go and resubscribe, please. Let us know if you have any problems. We want to make sure that everything works out for everybody. And let's get on with the show, as they say. So uh, let's talk to Dr. Ross Lockwood. Hi, David, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, you know, you you tempted me so much, Ross, because about a year ago, you sent me an email saying, hey, I'm about to go to Mars for, what was it? I think it was six weeks, or how long were you there? I was there for 120 days, so 120, four months. Okay, so you said, I'm going to Mars. I'm bringing a bunch of Mac Power Users episodes with me, and I'm going to be using some of the workflows. And I just wanted to tell you what I'm up to. <laughs> and, like, and that was an email that I was like, hmm. It got, I, it got, it got our attention. And, and so I immediately, of course, said, I got to talk to this guy, but he's going to Mars. So I uh, put it in OmniFocus, set it out five months, and then we have a few talks on the phone and on email, and here you are. But I guess we should kind of explain, Ross, did you really go to Mars or something like Mars? No, and I want to be absolutely clear here. I have not been on Mars, and no human being has yet been on Mars. Well, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you really know that? I mean, I've been watching some X-Files episodes recently, getting ready for the series reboot, and I'm not entirely convinced. And didn't they, on Doctor Who, they put an, uh, a hotel on Mars, I believe. Oh, actually, they put that on a moon. They put it on the moon on Doctor Who. That's real, right? Yeah, that's absolutely real. Doctor Who, you've got to take as, uh, as complete truth. Okay. Well, actually, what did you do, Ross? Tell us real quick. So we did a simulated mission to Mars, and that basically consisted of us living inside of an analog space habitat or this dome on the slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Man, if uh, I ever so go to Mars, places, I want it to be just like Hawaii. <laughs> of, all, of all the places on Earth, they decided to simulate a Mars mission in Hawaii. I mean, did did a bunch of scientists just get together and be like, uh, no, NASA, to totally Hawaii is the place we have to go to simulate Mars. And they bought that? I have to, uh, I have to imagine that something exactly like that happened. But keep in mind that this is happening 8,000 feet from ocean, uh, 8,000 feet altitude, and so we're up on the mountain where there's really no life. Um, this is kind of where the snow line is in Hawaii. So it really wasn't the tropical Hawaii that you think about. It's more okay. of the, the desert volcano. And also because they're doing a simulated mission, you are put inside a dome and you are not allowed to leave it, correct? That's exactly right. Uh, we had one window in the habitat and that was our only view. And if we wanted to go outside, we'd have to don our spacesuits and prepare kind of the EVA pr procedures, the extravehicular activity, and then we'd be allowed to go out. So for that entire 120-day period, we only saw the surface of, uh, I, I like to call it SMARS, so simulated Mars, okay. um, through some plastic visors and, and plastic windows. And, and you well, weren't tempted at all to don the spacesuit and drop off the, off the mountain and, and go surfing, just, just briefly. It would have taken a while. I mean, we were way out in the wilderness, kind of on wow. on this desolate slope. So uh, we we actually figured out how long it might take to walk down there, and it was a good solid ten hours just to get down to the saddle road, where the access to the 
to the habitat was. Well, wow. this is really a fascinating story. And, and you used a bunch of Macs to pull a lot of this off. And we kind of just teased everybody a little bit. But let's wind it, this back a little bit, Ross. Uh, tell us just a little bit about who you are. So uh, I live in Edmonton, Canada, and I have just recently graduated with a PhD in condensed matter physics. And to give you the short version, my PhD is shooting lasers at tiny things and seeing what happens. That could be and fun. What, what does happen if you shoot lasers at tiny things? I guess it depends on what the tiny things are. Well, the title of my thesis is Freestanding Silicon Quantum Dot Photoluminescence. So if we break that down into kind of the component parts, I'm studying silicon quantum dots, which is what you get when you take one to five nanometer crystals of quantum dots. That's kind of below the current transistor size that Intel and AMD are working on. And this is where the quantum mechanical properties overcome the classical properties. And if you shoot a laser at them, they'll actually absorb the energy and then re-emit it as light. So this is more in the photonic realm than in the electronic realm. Does that mean you're going to help us keep Moore's law in full swing? That's the hope. I mean, uh, a lot of the technology is looking at photonics as a possible avenue to take when we finally run out of room uh, in the electronic realm. Excellent. So is is this as a medium for for transmitting data? I mean, what's what are you uh, what what's the potential use case? Well, there's kind of two parts to that question. A lot of telecommunications is based on these photonic properties. So basically, any time you're exchanging in information on the internet, you'll be using fiber optics, and a lot of that takes place um, with silicon and using properties of silicon. So. On the one hand, uh, you can do uh, a lot faster stuff with smaller things, just like it is with electronics. The smaller you go, kind of the higher clock speeds you can get. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I was actually studying is what happens when you stick chemical compounds on the surface of these quantum dots. So where my research was really focused is what happens when an explosive vapor sticks to the surface of one of these quantum dots and what, what do you see in terms of the colors changing? So uh, for part of my thesis, we developed these uh, explosive sensors that would change color when a certain explosive was present nearby. And, and so and so you're doing this, you're getting your Ph.D. And in the meantime, there's this NASA funded program called High Seas, H.I. hyphen S.E.A.S. And if you're if you're listening at home in front of a computer, go to High Seas or High H.I. hyphen S.E.A.S. dot org to see the website. It's fascinating looking at how these guys are getting, getting along out there. And, and how did you get involved with that? Well, long story short, I was a teaching assistant at the University of Alberta for my PhD at their observatory. So they had this on-campus locale where they have telescopes set up and every Thursday night it would be open to the public. So I was just inundated with people saying, here's an opportunity to do um, this mission on Mars. And it came up a couple of years ago, and I applied, but I wasn't selected. So when it came time for this second mission, the one that I participated on, I actually got an email from them saying, we'd really like you to reapply. And that's how I got chosen for the second high seas mission. And what is the, what is the, you know, scientific purpose of, of this, I guess, is it a simulation? Yeah, that's right. So just for the listeners, high seas stands for the Hawaii space exploration analog and simulation where analog and simulation kind of refer to the fact that we're not actually going to Mars, but we're simulating what it might be like on Mars. And uh, the whole purpose of our mission is to um, establish 
the psychology of long duration space missions and how people might uh, react in a closed environment with um, many other crew members for long periods of time. And, and so, so what did you do in this, in this um, experiment you participated in? So uh, for the four month mission, we basically did exactly what you'd expect astronauts to do. Um, the week prior to our mission, we were trained um, kind of in the in the lava fields of Hawaii, just like the Apollo astronauts were, on how to take geological samples and map terrain uh, around the habitat. And when we finally did land on SMARS, we uh, were assigned duties every week that we had to accomplish. Of course, there's the routine chores like cooking food and washing clothes that we had to do, as well as habitat maintenance as well. So we basically lived as if we were on Mars. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did while I was there was uh, work on my thesis. But then I also brought my own uh, project as well. What was that? Uh, So I tested 3D printed surgical instruments in the simulated Martian environment. The idea being that if you're going to go to Mars, rather than take many, many pounds of stainless steel surgical equipment that you may never use, you bring a few pounds of 3D printing material and you print what you need. Now, surgical instruments, that's kind of one of those iffy things because you need them fast to perform a surgery. Uh, But we were actually simulating the mission as if it took place in 2025. So we made the assumption that, you know, in 10 years time, you'd actually be able to print these things almost instantaneously. Right. Exactly. So so the the idea uh, is instead of taking, because that's one of the the logistical problems with a mission to Mars is there's, you you have to bring everything you could possibly need with you. And you, can you anticipate everything that you're going to possibly need? And do you have the payload capacity to bring it with you? And I never, that's fascinating. I never thought about the idea of using 3D printer technology to, to, you know, plan for what you can, and then we'll build the rest when we get there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you just add one more component, the recyclability of those materials, then you can easily see that even if I've printed, you know, 10 pounds worth of stuff, you just I melt it down and use it again and, and recycle it. Exactly. Right. Wow. That's Damn. So what are the other types of equipment that you guys would be printing or were testing or was it just you doing this? So this was the project that I brought along, but we also had a 3D printer there. So I brought some surgical instruments, I printed some surgical instruments, and then we also designed and printed some other things for around the habitat. So clips for curtains, um, holders for sponges um, near the sink and that kind of a thing. Uh, Basically anything that you can think of. At one point, we needed something to cut duct tape while we were out on EVA. So I designed a very simple wedge that you could carry um, in a gloved hand and peel and cut duct tape so that you could use it on the surface of Mars. Now, I, I was just thinking, you know, one of the nice things about using 3D printing on in space exploration is that you don't have to do the design here. You could have someone back on, you know, the blue dot uh, do the design and just upload it to you. But uh, that would also require a delay in communication. Did you guys simulate that as well? Yeah, we had to do that. So the way... Uh, essentially that we did it is we assumed that Earth and Mars would be at their um, most distant points in the solar system for the duration of our surface mission. And that is about a 20-minute speed of light delay. So if you're talking about sending an email back to Earth, you have to factor in the fact that when once you push that send button, it's going to take 20 minutes for it to arrive on Earth, much less be seen by the receiving party, 
and then another 20 minutes um, when they push the send button to get back to you. So we're looking at a 40-minute round trip plus the time it takes to read and compose an email. Talk about dial-up speeds, man. That's that's something worse. <laughs> well, that's actually the funny part. Um, the way we simulated it was um, having a very high latency, so that's the 40 minutes that we're talking about, but right. also having a tremendously good bandwidth. So we were we were sending files at 25 megabits per second, um, which is nothing to sneeze at uh, when sure. you're talking about deep space communication. Is that realistic? Or I guess putting it in 2025, you think that would be realistic? Yeah, exactly. And and that's just, just the thing. Uh, there's already some pretty high bandwidth communication going on in the solar system between all the probes that are are in deep space right now. But it is, of course, a very problematic thing to take care of the delay between uh, those two. Now, at the same time, while you guys are in there for four months, you're not able to just go surf the web because of this delay, correct? Yeah, that's right. So, and this is one of the fun parts of the project. We actually had this um, incredible network that that uh, connected us to the Johnson Space Center, where they instituted the the forty minute delay for us. And they tried several different methods throughout the mission. Of course, it's not something that's easy to do because not a lot of people have tried it before. And I had fun kind of poking holes in all the all the different things that they tried doing. And I, I used some of the uh, the Mac-based tools that you talk about on Mac Power users um, to do those things. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So what, what were you doing? Well, in one case, um, the delay was simply a splash page that had a 40-minute countdown, <laughs> and it would load the page um, after the fact. And I was using tools like um, Hazel to run scripts at certain times of the day, that would just pull all 400 possible websites that I might want to browse 40 minutes before I thought I might want to browse them. So when I got up in the morning, um, I had those websites waiting for me, and that's because 40 minutes earlier my computer turned on and ran the script to load all those websites and tabs and do the countdown before I was even awake. I'm going to have to get a hold of Paul over at Hazel and tell him that you guys were using his application on simulated Mars. Something tells me that will just make his day. Yeah, and, and that's just the thing. I mean, in 2025, you expect that the computer systems that you're using would actually know to do these things in advance, right? I'm not going to wake up on Mars, type in, you know, HuffingtonPost.com, and then wait 40 minutes for that to load. Presumably, the computer will be going and fetching those things automatically so that when I am awake, um, it can present them to me as if it were loaded in real time. Well, and certainly for for mission type things, you'll you'll have schedules and timetables and know things that you're supposed to do at certain times. But for more personal things, you know, perhaps it can learn and anticipate some of the things of, oh, well, you know, you you like to browse CNN or you you like to visit this particular site. So let me go and fetch it for you, you know, 40 minutes before you typically go and get it. And, and maybe, exactly. there, maybe there won't be uh, quite so much of a, of a delay in, in 25, 25, but I don't, I don't know what we can do to, to make things travel faster than the speed of light. Um, and maybe we'll have to get Scotty on it. Yeah, get to work on that, Katie Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah um, so, so, but, but in terms of the simulation, the data you got when you woke up was 20 minutes old, correct? It wasn't up to minute um, information off the website. It was whatever had been there as of 20 minutes ago. Yeah, and we were using uh, uh, a program called Squid that would prefetch a lot of that information and then hold it locally. 
Um, but those took some pretty special configurations on our end, and that was mostly done by Dr. Bill Wicking from the Hawaii Preparatory Academy. So um, it did consist of a lot of kludges, and sometimes we'd get those websites in real time, so we'd kind of have to shield our eyes for 20 minutes and then and then just, um, you know, institute the delay kind of on the human side of things as well. So there were some things that worked perfectly, and then there were lots of things that we um, helped improve throughout the mission. I suspect there's a few people in our audience that aren't going to Mars, but they would still like to be able to have Hazel's um, fetch websites for them when they wake up in the morning. What, what type of scripts were you using in Hazel to do that? So I based my Hazel scripts off of um, one of these scripts that opens new tabs. And the one that I can think of off the top of my head that I use all the time is I have a little shortcut that you type .chr, short for .chrome, and it will take any of the front-facing windows in Safari and open them in Chrome. And the reason that I'm doing that is if there's Flash on a page and I don't have the Flash plugin installed, I can just hit .chr and open it in Chrome. So that's not an Apple script, Flash right? Baked in. What, what, what is the basis of that script? It's not Apple script, right? So it's kind of a combination of Apple script and Automator. So you can actually take App- Apple script and run it with an Automator. And then I was using Hazel to do the timing. Okay. So you've got an automator script that has a Apple script component and the Apple script component would be something like um, open Chrome and take the clipboard or something like that and, and open that URL. Yeah. So what I did was I just had a text file full of the websites that I wanted to prefetch and yeah. I would have it look on each line and open each new line as a new tab using that line as the address field. Great. Have you published that anywhere? Um, you know, I haven't, but uh, I, I think I will, just okay. so that it's available. But what is well, your website? If you, if you do, definitely send us a link, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I live on spincrisis.com, and you can find me all over the web with the handle spincrisis. All right, we'll make sure to get a link to that between now. The Thanks to the miracle of podcasting, we'll <laughs> be able to uh, link to that post that does not exist as we're recording this. But I think that's a great idea. Um, so you, so you had Hazel running for you and, um, and you guys are up there now in terms of the other communication delays, um, how else did that get in the way while you're up there? Like, for instance, I was thinking you could email like your family members with a 20 minute delay, but you couldn't FaceTime them. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, we had this rule instituted that you can't use any, um, asynchronous or sorry, synchronous communication. So we were stuck with anything that worked asynchronously. So um, it was actually our our email that worked almost flawlessly. We had this specially configured um, email web server that when we sent it, it would institute a 20-minute delay. And when it received email, it would institute a 20-minute delay on the way back. So um, we were were trying to figure out ways of posting to Facebook and Twitter and putting pictures online. And we solved those by setting up if this, then that rules. We would have... um, uh, our our trigger email with this if this then that and then the subject line would be the service that we wanted to trigger and the body of the text would be the thing we wanted to send out so for example if i wanted to update a twitter status i would type in my if this then that trigger address i would put a hashtag twitter in the sh- subject line and then the body of the email would become the tweet and i would send that and 20 minutes later if this then that would publish that on twitter you know, it's funny when you think about it, but why wouldn't an astronaut on Mars want to still engage in Twitter? The astronauts up on the space station do. Yeah. 
It, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and we wanted to make social media kind of a big component of our mission because we wanted to simulate it as if it was happening in real time. Yeah. Well, well who knows if Twitter will be around in 10 years. Well, something like that will be, that's for sure. Something will exist. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about um, some of the things that you, you did uh, in the Habitat and um, what implications it has for, for future missions, future real missions to Mars. Uh, but before we do, I want to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor for this episode, and that is our friends over at LaunchBar. And David and I have talked extensively about LaunchBar in the past. It is the app on my Mac that I absolutely cannot live with without. Uh, in fact, when I do an upgrade or something and it doesn't run, it is the first thing that I notice is for whatever reason, not installing and it's got to be fixed. They've got a brand new version six that sports a new user interface with themes. It is absolutely gorgeous and it matches the look and feel of Yosemite. They have really spent a lot of time looking at this and it just, they've done an amazing job with it. But it also has a lot of improved functionality as well. Uh, with LaunchBar version 6, they've got additional indexing rules, which means you're going to have the ability to dig in and do new things with LaunchBar. And I noticed they're updating it fairly regularly and they're getting even more. So with version six, uh, you can now integrate in directly with reminders. So if you want to add something quickly to your reminders list, something that I do frequently is I keep a shopping list in my reminders. So with just a few keystrokes and launch bar, if I notice that I'm out of something, I can quickly add it to my shopping list and reminders and it's done. Uh, you can tag items and integrate with finder tags within launch bar. You can, sh um, call up Safari iCloud tabs uh, within LaunchBar. So if you're sitting at your Mac and you remember that you were earlier this morning reading something that may still be open on your iPhone or on your iPad, you can now pull that up using LaunchBar. Um, and you can also send and receive files. Well, you can send files uh, with AirDrop now using LaunchBar. That's now one of the destinations that you can use. So if you've got a file with LaunchBar, you've always been able to take files and grab them and send them to different places on your Mac. But now you can grab a file and send it off uh, to either another device or to a friend or colleague using uh airdrop. And so the amount of things that you can do, if you just sit down and learn some of these power features within LaunchBar, calling up a file, grabbing it and shooting it off to another device with airdrop, it's absolutely amazing. And if you want to dig in a little deeper, LaunchBar has these powerful custom script-based actions. So you can extend its functionality even further by writing in common script languages. You can write your own scripts. Or if you go to the LaunchBar website, you can add them from a library of user and developer submitted scripts. Uh, I just noticed in a most recent LaunchBar update that uh, they added the ability to integrate with additional apps. And this is perhaps, here's a, a LaunchBar tip that I'll include because we always try to add a tip with these um, LaunchBar spots, is that you can integrate LaunchBar with certain apps that have built-in LaunchBar uh, capabilities. 1Password is a great example of this. And so if you uh, turn on the 1Password integration within LaunchBar and within 1Password itself, with a couple of keystrokes, LaunchBar can index your 1Password file and you can automatically launch, go and fill one password. Password. So if I type the name of a, a password or a website that I've got saved in one password, it will automatically launch and fill that password. And I noticed just recently that LaunchBar added uh, Busy Contacts, which we talked about on a previous episode, to their index. And so I can now s search all of my Busy Contact information within LaunchBar. And initially I thought, well, you know, that's not a big deal because LaunchBar has always been able to, to search my contacts. But Busy Contact just provides me with so much more information, especially for my exchange-based contacts that I use for work. It's it's making working my, with my contacts on my work machine in particular um, so 
much of a, of a pleasure. I just can't even explain it to you. So uh, you can find out more about LaunchBar uh, by uh, checking them out over at launchbar.com. You can get a free trial, uh, but after 30 days, LaunchBar will occasionally nag you to consider a purchase. Uh, it's available for, uh, you can get a single license, a family license, and there's even upgrade pricing available. So go check it out. You can find more information at launchbar.com. And if you decide to buy, please tell them that Mac Power User sent you. You know, one of the things I really like about this high seas project is they're very deliberate and, and you can tell that, you know, um, that NASA is involved because they're, they're planning these things out. And I, I guess I have this really, um, high opinion of NASA and the things that they've been able to accomplish in the past. And you were telling me that they actually have multiple missions to this dome. You were in the four month mission, but right now they have an eight month mission ongoing, correct? Yeah, that's right. So HiSEAS actually started out as a four-month analog food study where they established the kind of dietary needs that a four-month surface mission would need. Um, now, we used kind of shelf-stable dehydrated foods for the duration of our mission, and that was based on the results from that first mission. So because our mission was the psychology study, we had the four-month food study out of the way, and we could focus on just kind of um, the team cohesion and crew effects that we saw over the course of the four-month mission. Now, our mission is one of three psychology missions. This next one is the eight-month mission that's been ongoing since October, and that actually ends on or around June 13th this summer. So that'll be um, an interesting time to kind of look up what's going on in the mission and kind of catch the wave of of media events that are surrounding the the exit of the the six crew members that are currently there. And that will be followed up by a 12-month mission. So they'll be comparing, you know, four, three different durations, a four, an eight, and a 12-month mission uh, to see kind of what the differences are between crew psychology over the, those lengths. You know, it really is important. I guess you have the right fit, fit with the people on in, the, in there because you're stuck together for a long time. Like, I'm pretty sure Katie Floyd would just throw me out the airlock like the second week. <laughs> Well, there were times where there were crew members, probably myself included, that uh, we wanted to throw into the brig or or put them in a spacesuit and kick them outside for a few hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, how does you- how does the selection process work? So, uh, you know, obviously you've you've got to go through a, a process, and there's a, a core science component, I'm sure, but there must be some kind of psychological component to to make sure that you don't end up with nut jobs like Sparky and I on the mission. Yeah, we actually did kind of a number of interviews to kind of establish um, whether we'd be good crew or not. And we had to fill out a number of surveys to see whether or not we'd be compatible. And as part of actually going to Hawaii in the final selection process, we all had to pass our FAA flight certification health tests. So because I was from Canada, I did whatever the Canadian equivalent uh, of that FAA certification was. And so that was kind of part of the screening process. And then um, before the final crew selection was made, we went through um, about 16 hours of Skype interviews with different candidates and kind of said who we got along with the best just on Skype. So it's kind of like recording a podcast. We spent a lot of time just talking to one another and getting an idea of um, who was interested in what and how that fit together. And, and remind me again, how many of, of you total were there? There were six of us total that went into the habitat. Yeah. Wow. And like and like a simulation, you all had specific mission roles, correct? Well, this is where, you know, it kind of gets a little bit fuzzy. So for 
for our mission, we actually kind of established roles after the fact. Now, Casey Stedman was our mission commander, and we actually elected him kind of before we even um, got into the habitat based on his experience with the Air Force. Um, the other people that were on the, the mission, Annie Caraccio is a NASA chemical engineer from um, from Florida. We had a graduate student from the University of North Dakota, Tiffany Swarmer. Uh, we also had a German space agency um, researcher named Lucy Poulet. And then we had a psychologist named Ron Williams that, that was there as well, along with myself. But when we talked on the phone, you were telling me you guys actually had some engineering type issues that you had to solve while you were up on Mars. Yeah. So or, we, or Mars. <laughs> that's right. We yeah. kind of we kind of fell into the roles. So um, my background in experimental physics meant that I was good at um, adapting uh, equipment, existing equipment in the habitat for new uses. And that meant that I was fixing a lot of the systems whenever they went wrong Um Annie was really good with the chemical engineering aspects, so she basically um, took care of our resource management and waste management as well. And, you know, Lucy Poulet's background was in growing plants, so she was caring for the greenhouses and the plant experiments that were ongoing within the habitat. And it basically went like that throughout the mission, that whoever had the most expertise for a particular problem, we delegated those tasks to them. So did, did anybody bring the, the fiction work, The Martian, with you, Andy Weyer's book? Actually, that was uh, one of the first books that we read as a crew. So we all got a copy of that digitally, um, and that was delivered to our Kindles. And we all, we all read it and thought that it was an incredibly um, well-written experience that, that was really reflective of what we were going through um, on the mission. So yeah. you know, if you've read the book, and I recommend that you do, um, there's a lot of things that go wrong and the way that um, the main character of the Martian dealt with them was exactly the kind of situations that we were facing and how we were dealing with them as well. So at any point, were you growing potatoes inside of the dome? <laughs> uh, we, we didn't grow potatoes, but we did grow radishes, peas, um, lettuce and carrots. So, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, let's let's talk about some of the logistics of that. On a on a true mission to Mars, there's there's going to be you know it's it's not like you can farm on Mars. I I would imagine uh, anything you you grow would have to be kind of hydroponics, you know, in in an in the habitat. So is is that did you you grow? I'm sure you grew some to supplement your own food, but on did you have to trek in all of your all of your food at the beginning of the, the four month mission or, and, and the habitat was closed and how did you what was what was done to figure all that out was that a support staff who helped you bring everything in or actually that kind of fell to lucy her experiment where mine was the 3d printed surgical tools she was growing lettuce under various um lighting conditions so we had led arrays of of every type, you know, optimized for the red color spectrum and the blue color spectrum and to the color spectrum of the actual lettuce themselves. So while we had the shelf-stable food from the previous mission, Lucy brought along experiments to grow the lettuce and the radishes and the peas. So you're and eating a lot of salads. <laughs> so, yeah, once once every about two weeks, we would have one dinner that consisted solely of the vegetables grown in those experiments. And I can tell you that it was fantastic. Now, when you um, when you did your experiments with the 3D printing, um, what was the hardware you were using for doing that? 
So basically, we were just um, timing uh, the difference between the surgical, the stainless steel instruments and the 3D printed instruments to kind of establish, like, are these easy enough to use? Do people have trouble with them? And we had four different stations and four different surgical tasks that we needed to accomplish. So one in particular, we had a latex tissue suture pad that we would use to practice stitching up a wound, for example. And in that case, we would be using 3D printed tweezers in addition to um, the needle drivers uh, to actually accomplish those things. And the preliminary results that I can tell you about right now, this is going to be part of a larger study, uh, was that the 3D printed tools had really no effect on whether or not, um, uh, no effect on the time it took to accomplish those tasks. So we basically established that you can um, successfully use 3D printed tools in these surgical tasks. Uh, what type of computer hardware and printers were you using to do it, to create the materials with? Oh, okay. Well, I was printing from my Mac, and uh, the 3D printer that we had in the Habitat was a Lulzbot um, 3D printer that's based on a RepRap design. And the software we were using to run that was just the open source so- uh, software. I think the interface we used is called Pronterface. And uh, we were using free software like Google SketchUp to actually do the designs and and then send to the interface. Uh, did you guys, how much thought did you give to how many computers do we bring with us on this mission? Actually, that was kind of left up to the, the participants themselves. So I can tell you that we learned about the mission um, kind of midnight uh, New Year's Eve, and we were inside the habitat by the end of March. So that gave me a total of three months to kind of ask those questions to myself. And in that three-month period, I upgraded from uh, my MacBook Air to a 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro so that I could do the video editing, and I bought a GoPro and uh, a Micro Four-Thirds camera and a whole bunch of other uh, knickknacks and doodads so that I could, you know, kind of figure out what workflows might be like on Mars. But it really wasn't a lot of time to to figure that out. And because they're you know, time shifting to 2025 with all of this, I guess there wasn't a whole lot of pushback about saying, well, that's too much weight or anything like that. No, the, the basics of um, what we were allowed to bring is anything that fit into two standard luggage containers. And I think that was more for just the ease of transport, right? Um, we'd have, we had to fly into Hawaii and then they had to pile all of our stuff in the back of a truck to get it into uh, up to the habitat on the mountain. So, and if you're going into a place where you're going to have dodgy internet connections, um, how much like data do you bring with you for just personal consumption, like movies or books or things like that? That's a good question. And the way that I um, sorted this out was I bought um, three two terabyte hard drives for a total of six terabytes of external storage. And I basically loaded that up with all the media that I could think of consuming Uh, even though we didn't have enough time to do all of that. And then any time I had some trouble with space considerations, I would just eliminate some of the um, movies or TV shows that I knew we wouldn't have time for. And that let me have more more space for storing the GoPro videos that I was producing. When I go on vacation, I always optimistically bring a movie or two (laughs) and I never watch them. I can only imagine how little time you had with all those experiments you were doing up there. Well, we managed to get through the entire Serenity series, uh, the classic for um, space travel, and we got through the majority of Star Trek, the original series as well. Okay. Well, that's not bad. Did did you have much downtime when you were up there? I keep saying up there. In my mind, you're on Mars. Well, they're on a mountain. 
Could you repeat the question? Did, did you have much free time? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty busy. Yeah, a typical day looked like um, about eight hours of, of true work, just like you'd have here on Earth. And then, of course, you'd have to do all the kind of menial tasks that you have to do um, on Earth as well. So, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner added one hour each. So you're looking at now 11 hours. Um, and then we had some supplemental tasks that we did just to keep sane. Um, so we had games that we would play and stuff like that. And usually those would amount to about an hour a day. Um, so we were looking at about an hour to two hours of free time. And part of being up so high on the mountain, um, remember we're at about 8,000 feet elevation. So that's kind of the threshold for um, developing altitude sickness. Uh, I found that we actually slept a few hours more than normal uh, just because it was um, kind of a restless sleep, even though it was dead silent at night and completely dark. Uh, you just don't get enough oxygen, so you're, you know, um, tossing and turning for some period during the night and not getting a very good sleep. So we had a little bit more time for sleep as well. Well, I, I know that you also ran the whole habitat on a Mac mini server from our discussions. And I want to talk about that and some of the software you used to make all of that happen as well. But before we do, uh, let me just take a little break and talk about our sponsor, uh, the Omni Group. Now, the Omni Group has been a sponsor of our show for some time, and they've got a new product out, Omni Outliner, for, well, it's actually not a new product, but it's kind of a re reborn product. And that's Omni Outliner on iOS. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about that because Omni Outliner came to the iPad uh, with the original iPad release. I mean, they got that out very quickly, but it's been updated over the last couple of years. And now the newest version is universal, which means you can now access Omni Outliner on your iPhone. And I didn't realize how important that was to me until I suddenly had it. Um, I was in on the beta and I find myself jumping in there all the time because I have, you know, like mind maps to me, outlines are things that are always a work in progress. And if you haven't tried this yet, you really should, because they've got that great OmniSync service. Your outlines are going to synchronize between all of the platforms, the Mac, the iPad and the iPhone. And most importantly, you're going to be able to jump into them from any device very quickly. With Omni Outliner on the iPhone, it just looks fantastic. They've, they've designed the interface so it's actually usable on that small screen. And if you've got the 6 Plus, it's even, it's, it's luxurious. It's great. But I've got just the iPhone 6 and I still use it all the time. And when I've got an outline cooking, like I'm working on a big screencast right now and I've got it built up in multiple levels in an Omni outline. Uh, every time I think of something I want to add, I, if I've got my phone in my pocket, I pop it out, I hit the Omni outliner icon, and I'm right into the outline. I can make changes, and it'll show up immediately on the iPad and my Mac. This is really huge. So if you've, if you've got into Omni outliner already, it's going to be a free update for you. It's just going to show up on your phone because it's universal now. If you've been waiting to get the iOS version, now's the time to get it because you're going to have Omni outliner both for the iPad and the iPhone for one price. Uh, it's a fantastic application. It's just loaded with features. Like it looks beautiful. It thinks smart. It does all the things you want. It's got like the smart column types where you can put check boxes and dates. All that stuff is on iOS. It's got rich text, tech zooming. It's got import and export features and batch features. It's just a, a laundry list of features that this application has. But the most important thing is it gives you the ability to work on an outline at any time from any place. I love what they've done. Go check it out. Go over to the omnigroup.com and they've got all the information there about the new version of Omni Outliner. You can go ahead and get it in the uh, app store. And like I said, it's universal now. So if you buy it for the iPad, you're going to get it automatically on the iPhone. 
Go check it out. And thank you, Omni Group, for supporting the show. Now, Ross, when you were talking to me, um, we were talking about this Mac mini server that you were running it on. And at the time, I thought, wow, wouldn't they want like something really beefy to make all this work? But the more I got thinking about it, I guess you would want something that's efficient, something you can work on that doesn't use a lot of power. Is that is that how you came up with that decision? Yeah, I think the decision to use. So the server actually ran on a 13 inch MacBook Pro. And the reason being that the 13 inch MacBook Pro has a built in display, keyboard, mouse and power supply. And this is kind of one of the things that we struggled with was power management. So if we did have a power outage, we knew that the brains of our system would still be alive because the Mac power, uh, the MacBook Pro would just switch to battery power anytime we had a problem with the power system. That makes sense. And and there was some software that you were using I had never heard of before, um, starting with this um, UILA. Is that how do you call it? What do you how do you pronounce that? So. UILA is a, is a Hawaiian word. It's actually pronounced Juila, and it is in reference to kind of the Hawaiian concept of electricity or lightning. And so this software, Juila, was using uh, was running on the MacBook Pro to actually control um, a lot of the automation that was happening within the habitat. And what Juila would do is take a whole bunch of the data coming in from our um, temperature, humidity sensors, our power sensors. We had water sensors, heat sensors, CO two monitoring. And it would integrate all that to figure out what's the best course of action to um, kind of control the temperature and the humidity within the habitat. So to give you an example, if we were using the exercise equipment within the habitat and UELA detected that the CO2 levels had risen above a certain point, UELA would go ahead and turn on the, the ventilation system and pull fresh air into the habitat. And that entire system was using... Um, these small little devices called web relays um, from an American company called Control by Web. So those would basically report all the values from all the sensors, and then they could also be used to switch uh, on and off different devices within the habitat. So it's almost like space home automation. Yeah, and these are kind of you know one step above the, the Wemo switches that we're all buying for our homes right now. So if you are kind of a power user when it comes to home automation, I would definitely look up this control by web company because they have this whole host of different devices that let you do uh, a lot of fun things with your, your systems at home. And, and UELA was custom designed for this experiment, correct? Yeah. And we worked kind of with um, David Cook of Cookware Software to, to interface with it. We would suggest what changes that we might like, you know, if, um, if the water, for example, our water supply was going below 20% of our capacity, we asked him to just fire off an automated email to our, our ground support so that, you know, our, and this is, I'm doing air quotes here, our robotic delivery service could bring water up to the habitat and replenish our supply. Um, just, yeah, a question that occurred to me earlier, I forgot to ask is how involved was the Johnson Space Center throughout this process? I mean, could you were they in constant communication with you? Um, how so did that work? They basically managed our, our internet communications network. But in general, NASA um, provided the funding to run the study. They didn't actually build the habitat themselves, right? Um, the habitat was leased by Hank Rogers to NASA for the purpose of these studies. But because the studies were performed by the University of Hawaii, it was kind of like NASA hiring an independent contractor to to actually do the studies. 
So we did talk to um, the NASA engineers kind of on a daily basis just about um, the communications issues that we were facing. But in general, um, the rest of this study was done kind of by the University of Hawaii itself. Like you told me at one point, you guys had the, was it the toilet broke, right? Oh, no. Yeah, no, this is, this is really interesting. So we kind of distinguish between whether something is in simulation or out of simulation by, by saying in sim and out of sim. And um, we had the, we had these very interesting composting toilets, the kind that you might install in a cabin that doesn't have, um, you know, uh, is not connected to the power grid. And these composting toilets, basically you deposit your, your waste and you add sawdust into the mix and they have bacteria that operate within them to decompose things and actually produces a usable soil in the end. Now we didn't use the soil, but like you alluded to, one of these toilets essentially died during our mission and we had to um, basically clean the entire toilet out and then restart it from scratch. And we did this entire procedure in sim. So we actually didn't break any of the Martian rules that were imposed upon us to, to do this. And this basically involved hauling about 100 pounds of human waste in spacesuits out to a recovery point where, you know. Thank goodness our, you were in spacesuits. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How good were those spacesuits? I'm looking at the pictures. <laughs> it looks to me like it's a simulated spacesuit as well. <laughs> So we had two simulated spacesuits. Those are the MXC spacesuits that you see. Those are the white suits if you're looking at photos of yeah. these things. And you can find some photos online. I'll put some up on my website so people can find them there. And then we also had um, basically modified hazmat suits. But in general, both of these suits were actually taking air from the Earth atmosphere and pumping them into the suit. Uh, the reason being that on Mars, you can carry... Um, with Mars's gravity at about 38% of Earth gravity, you can carry, you know, that much more in proportion. So thinking, you know, if you want a 50-pound backpack on Earth, that might be something closer to 200 pounds on Mars. So a 200-pound spacesuit has all the um, air filtration systems and stuff in it, but because we're on Earth, you couldn't conceivably carry that 200 pounds. So we had to simulate the spacesuits um, uh under 50 pounds there so that they would just be pulling air in from uh from the earth atmosphere and supplying us like that that makes sense now you also had software on your server that was running i guess some um, uh, weather forecasting and and bat battery and power management correct yeah that's right so the weather system again is one of these controlled by web devices um that one is called the x320m and that actually has a weather station that you interface directly with. So we could do kind of very simple forecasting. Um, we were measuring things like how much solar flux we were getting or how much sunlight the solar panels were exposed to during the day. And uh, oh, what was the second one that you asked about? Well, just power management. Oh, the power management. So, yeah, th those also interfaced with our solar power, um, uh, solar power, our generator and our fuel cells to kind of establish you know, the solar power we used for the majority of of the time in the habitat, and that would generate a surplus of energy during the day and charge our battery banks. But if it was a cloudy day in Hawaii, for example, and we didn't have enough battery power to um, to make it through all the, the entire night. And remember, we're running things like freezers and storing saliva samples for the psychology study. Um, if we couldn't make it through the night with power, we, we would automatically switch to a fuel cell system and if the fuel cell system wasn't working, we had a backup gasoline generator as well. 
So uh, Uila, for the most part, handled those things, and it evolved throughout the mission, getting better and better with time. So it's really finding the ways that it would break and then fixing those um, that allowed us to get better with time. How many of those fixes were performed by the six of you on site versus getting like radioing out for help with some of these things? Actually, the majority were. And on, on my website, again, I've got some of those repair stories that we did. So, for example, uh, when we first got into the habitat, the water sensor was miscalibrated, meaning that 40% on the sensor was actually an empty tank. But oh, we no. didn't know that at the time. So when we hit 40%. Boy, that, that could have really sucked if you were on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> well, but again, so we solved this basically in sim. Um, of course, there's no way for us to go out and get water on Mars. So we did have to call for a water resupply, uh, but we managed to scrape enough water together to survive the, the time period from running out to getting a resupply. And then we had all sorts of problems. So um, the water line between our water tanks and the water pump wasn't full of water, so it wasn't primed. And we had to go and reprime the system. And in repriming the system, we broke the sensor wire. So we had to go back out in the spacesuits and do um, electronics in a spacesuit, which if you've read The Martian, you'll know that there's a, a pretty funny quote about that uh, there. And and we had power failures and all sorts of fun stuff that happened during the, the mission that we dealt with mostly in sim. But if there was ever human interaction with us, of course, because it's a, an isolation study, We'd have to go into our um, small bedrooms and put earplugs in and close the windows and basically isolate ourselves so that we didn't hear um, what or who was um, doing the repairs in and around the habitat. How often did that happen? Oh, I think it happened twice in total for our mission. It was not uh, not common at all. And, and really, like, I can't even tell you who was up there doing what. I just know that the system worked after they left. Yeah. Interesting. And then you guys also were using an app that we've talked about on the show before, Security Spy, which is um, a video capture. Kind of A lot of people are using it for home security type situations, but you used it for an entirely different purpose. Yeah. So um, Security Spy is really great because you can plug in just about any camera and so Security Spy will pull the video feed in and turn it into like a fully fledged security system that you can say, you know, detect when there's motion in this and that place. So basically what we did is for the psychology study, we installed cameras in the public area uh, on the main floor, which is where we had our food preparation and our meetings and EVA planning meetings as well. So the video cameras were really there just to measure how much um, and what kind of interaction we had with each other. And Security Spy was there to, um, to grab those videos. But of course, you know, video files are huge. So we were using features in Security Spy like detect motion and scheduling so that it could reduce kind of the total number of video files that were present on the server at any one time. And uh, we were using a, a couple of different cameras. We had the Axis M1054 network camera, which was a lot of fun for me because it had um, the ability to actually send sounds out. So um, from within the network, I could navigate to the camera and then make it bark like a dog and uh, and scare our commander as he's preparing his breakfast. <laughs> I'm sure that went really well for the psychological studies. <laughs> well, we were we were toying with the idea of actually getting back onto the network so that we could prank the other crew that's currently there with the sound of dogs barking. But that was kiboshed quite quickly. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sure that would be a problem. And then you had a, what was it, the ubiquity uh, unify cameras as well. 
Yeah, and a lot of the network equipment that we used around the habitat was Ubiquiti um, networking equipment. So these cameras just worked right out of the box. Um, we were using um, Ubiquiti Wi-Fi um, access points, and then actually to get internet to the habitat, which is you know miles from anything, there's no wires that run up to the habitat. We were communicating with the observatory over on Mauna Kea, which is where you know um, qu- quite recently in the news they're talking about the 30 meter telescope. While well, we were interfacing. Um, from basically where we were on Mauna Loa to the peak of Mauna Kea using ubiquity power bridges, which are these giant Wi-Fi panels that do um, kind of directional Wi-Fi. And, uh, and that's what our main link was to, uh, to the Internet. So it went from the habitat to the top of Mauna Kea, from Mauna Kea down to the University of Hawaii at Hilo, and from the University of Hawaii at Hilo, it went across... Uh, across the internet to Johnson Space Center, where there was an exit point at, um, to the internet at large. And then you were also using Hazel with the security spy setup as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. So similar to um, kind of my own um, archival functions, anytime that security spy spat out the day's video, I would have Hazel grab that video and then archive it into um, a month, week, day folder so that researchers could go in and see you know, exactly when it happened using the file structure rather than some kind of obscure um, file name in, and, a, and a big big folder full of uh, hundreds of files. They would only have about a dozen files to look at for any given day. Now, I've never lived in a situation where there are cameras pointed at me pretty much all day, except when you're in your, your bedroom, I guess, or the sleeping area. Um, what did, did that affect you at all, or did you just forget about it after a while? Actually, it's really funny because when we first set the cameras up. They weren't set up um, at the beginning of the mission. We actually had to install them ourselves and and connect them to the network. Uh, we didn't know whether they were recording in real time or just archiving the videos. And as it turns out, they were just being archived. So there were probably some really funny clips where we would walk up to the camera and go, geez, it sure be nice if, you know, we could email our spouses today uh, and not knowing that th- those videos basically ended up in a dead end and we weren't actually talking to any of the researchers. So um, I think... On the back end, um, Cornell, Cornell had its own rules about using those videos for specific functions. And those videos, you know, they were kind of isolated from the network at large so that it couldn't be accessed from the outside. And that gave us, once we actually learned this, we didn't know it at first, um, it gave us a, a sense of uh, a better sense of privacy that the cameras were actually being used for research purposes only and not being um, used in the way that I described where they could be, you know, pranked by someone on the network. So now you were, but you had limited days you were able to email your spouse? Well, uh, of course, as part of the things that went wrong, the network would go down. So uh, at one time in particular, uh, we had a power outage, and that actually caused a kernel panic on Cornell Mac Mini. Um, Mm. This is the one running the video cameras. But it also caused the power bridges to revert to their original firmware. So they weren't connected the way that we expected them to, and we had to restore them to... Um, the configuration that was um, actually operating at the time that connected us to Johnson Space Center. So uh, there were times where we needed to use a back channel, and that basically consisted of tweaking you know, our internal network settings to communicate through a different gateway. And that gateway actually went from the habitat to the Mauna Loa Observatory, which is basically an earthquake observatory for the volcano, and from there down to the Hawaii Preparatory Academy, but that was a very, very low bandwidth connection. So there I was sending out 
basically sending text files that were, you know, a few bits um, to Bill Wicking saying problem, you know, with this gateway, uh, you know, ping is over 20 minutes or something like this, which I guess wasn't, wasn't too unusual. But um, there were times where we had to use some very specialized tools um, to actually kind of diagnose the problems with the network. It's just you're constantly looking at your power, your available power, available water. I mean, all these things you've got to think about for a simulated Mars habitat. Now, at some point, did you did that become normal to you? I mean, it seems to me like I would be thinking about it constantly. Uila was one of those really cool systems that had its own kind of local network web page. So on my iPad, I could pull Uila up and see, you know, what's the temperature inside versus outside? How is the CO2 level doing? And many times we actually had problems where we needed to establish whether the freezer had, for example, gone offline and and warmed up to above zero, which would have destroyed kind of all of the samples that we were keeping within it. So you could actually go and click on any one of the numbers within Uila, and it would pull up a 24-hour graph telling you what the value of that sensor had read over the last 24 hours. So there's some great graphs that I saved which show that um, – the the heating system is running only during the night, right? Because then it dropped below uh, whatever the threshold was for running it. I think it was 60 degrees Fahrenheit um, to kick that system on. Uh, and we used it to diagnose things all the time. So it was one of the first things that I checked in the morning was, you know, how's Uila doing? I'd like to to see that. Or um, looking at the camera that shows kind of the, the view from externally from uh, the solar panels had a camera mounted on them that we could see the habitat and kind of the weather outside. And that was almost a better portal to the outside world than the one window that we had. Well, Ross, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you learned overall in, in your four months on, on simulated Mars and, and how that translates and, and what information that we can learn from this to, to potentially real missions on Mars in the future. But before we do, I want to take a quick break and talk about our next sponsor for this episode. Uh, and that is our pals over at Fracture. And if you haven't seen a fracture, uh, or if you haven't tried one yet, you, you really should go check it out because I've got to tell you, I've got a couple of these on my wall and they are absolutely a focal point. And so what a fracture is, is fracture will take your photos and it will print them in vivid color directly on glass. We we have all of these devices, you know, we've got our iPhones, we've got digital cameras, we've got iPads now. We are taking more photos than we ever have before, but we're really not printing them. You know, when we when we had film cameras, we would take the film and we would get them developed and we would have these photos that we could put in frames and put places. But it seems that the more we've moved over to digital, the less we actually have our own photos to be able to put on our wall. And that's because, you know, honestly, it's kind of a pain. You've got to get them printed. You've got to find a frame. You've got to find a mat. You've got to figure out what matches. You've got to put it. figure out where you're going to put it. And Fracture takes care of a lot of that because what Fracture is going to do is it's going to allow you to upload your photo to their website. It's going to print your photo directly on glass. They'll ship it to you anywhere. And inside that box, you're going to have everything that you need to either um, mount your photo up on the wall um, or, you know, Pop it up on your desk or your bookshelf, and it looks beautiful just as is. Their prices start as little as just $15 for a 5x5 size print, um, and everything is handmade and checked for quality. These are these take your photos, and they really turn them into unique pieces of art. You don't have to worry about framing them. You don't have to worry about getting a match. You don't have to worry about how you're going to display them. Um, they just, everything is taken care of. 
I've mentioned before, I have several fractures. I have two large ones that I got from uh, recent trips hanging in my office, and they are the first thing that my clients see when they walk in. And every time without fail, the first time someone walks into my office, I get instant comments. What are those? Where did you get them? Where did you buy them? You know, thinking that these were pieces of art that I had bought somewhere. And I explained to them, it's a great talking point. No, those are my own photos. I I took those and and had them printed and and shipped to me. And and now they're hanging up on my wall. So if you're interested in taking your own photos or perhaps uh, turning in someone else's photo into a great gift, all you've got to do is head over to their website at FractureMe.com. They've got a variety of sizes, a variety of shapes. You can just take your photo, upload, and it will all be handled online. And then your photo will print out and they'll ship it to you. Uh, excellent shipping quality. I've never had any trouble with anything that they've ever sent me being broken or damaged. Um, and if you use the promo code MAC15, that's capital M-A-C-1-5, you're going to save 15% on your order. So go check them out at FractureMe.com uh, and let them know that Mac Power users sent you. So, Ross, um, one of the things before we get into kind of the, the big picture that you took out of this is I can't help myself. You've got a note in here about how you're using Text Expander. How do you use text expander in, in space? Well, because this is a psychology study, there were about a dozen surveys that we had to fill out throughout the day. And one of those studies was kind of an end of the day form that had, you know, how do you feel about your interactions with this person and this person and on this topic and on that topic? So it was basically this giant matrix of forms to fill out. And typically, if you were just a standard user, you'd have to go box by box and put, you know, a number between zero and 10. And I found that over the course of the mission, my answers weren't varying that much. So I wrote a little text expander snippet that would tab through all the boxes and put all my default numbers in first. And then I could go in and look and see, you know, which one of these needs to be altered on a case by case basis. And that must have saved me about half an hour's worth of work. So, you know, we'd all kind of be sitting down with our laptops after dinner. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, uh, and I would say, oh, I'm working on, you know, this survey now. And the rest of the crew would go, yeah, and that's what I'm working on, too. And then I'd say, OK, now I'm done. And they go, whoa, how did you do that? And I was like, well, I'm using Text Expander, But of course, I was one of the only Mac users on the crew. So the rest of the crew, they were using um, either the Samsung tablets that were provided to us or, you know, their Windows machines that they had brought with them. And, you know, it would take them 20 minutes to fill out that that part of the survey, whereas I would just be lightning fast for me. What a shame. I guess one of the little known features of text expander is that it can actually tab through form fields. So if you're finding, you know, that you have to do a particular form over and over again, you can actually teach text expander to go and and fill it out for you. Okay, so how much control while we're while we're still kind of on this topic of of technology did did you have over the um over the technology that would be used uh, in facilitating the mission, you know, using the MacBook Pro as as a as a server using Mac OS server um, versus how much of that was pre set up for you? I know you mentioned they handed out Samsung tablets. How much of that was set up by perhaps the prior crew? Because I know you mentioned you were the second second expedition. And then how much of that was set up? You know, pre planning even before the first crew came in. You know, as far as the as as far as our knowledge was concerned, we actually had no idea what to expect, um, what kind of technology we'd be using. We basically were only given the opportunity to bring our own devices. So I had my iPhone, my iPad, and my MacBook that I brought with me, with no prior knowledge of what was there. 
And when I discovered that the Habitat was running on a Mac Mini and a MacBook Pro, I was just over the moon because it meant that I could interface with it. You know, if there was any trouble with those systems, that I would just default to um, to be uh, me who is interfacing with with those computers because I knew you know where network settings is and how to change the IP address of the gateway and that kind of a thing. So it was really kind of um, we had no idea going in what would happen, and it just ended up being a lot of fun. And I know the guys that I worked with that were running those systems were really pleased to have someone that had uh, Mac experience there because it meant that, you know, if there was a problem with the network, they could just fire me an email and 20 minutes later I'd get to work on it rather than them having to um, log in remotely and um, kind of fiddle with the low, uh, the low network connection, the low speed network connection to get it done there. Do you think that was a consideration at all in, in crew selection? Obviously on a, on a true mission, you're going to have to look at who has certain skills. You know, do we have an engineer? Do we have a pilot? Do we, I, I don't know, do we have a doctor? Do we, do we have people who have all of these skills that, that complete a whole picture? Um, was that looked at at all in the crew selection of, you know, gosh, we, we run this on a, on a Mac mini server. Do, do we have anybody who knows how, to, how Macs work here? You know, I don't think that it ever came up in the interviews, but I think if there was any kind of distinguishing features between crew members during the selection process, it was which one of these people um, had Skype up and running, had good video and audio quality, who knew how to do the connections, who, you know, the the kind of things that you look for when um, you're communicating with anybody in an interview type scenario. So is this person on time? Um, Is their connection good? Did they choose an appropriate venue? So, you know, I was doing all my interviews in the lab with a 3D printer behind me and with, you know, um, a, a little Sony robotic IBO um, kind of dancing in the background. And I think that that was probably um, a distinguishing factor in in the interview process for me. But again, I can't be certain. So can I take from this that if you use a Mac, you're more likely to go to Mars? Well, I mean, as far as I know now, it's uh, it was one in f- <laughs> one in six people for um, for our mission. But I think for this next mission, there are a few more Apple users, uh, kind of, kind of there, and and they did embrace the idea that you know the whole the whole subsystem is running on a Mac MacBook Pro. So you know we need someone there who knows their has a background with Apple. It, you know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, in twenty twenty five, the computer hardware they're going to use to go to Mars is going to have redundant systems and it's probably going to be something very customized, but it's just interesting to me that when you want to put together a system to monitor a habitat that using, you know, using a Mac mini server or a MacBook pro as a server, uh, there is things you can go off the shelf and it looks like this has largely been put together with existing technologies. You guys didn't have a massive budget to write something custom, but, you know, gluing together things like Hazel and some of these uh, monitoring sensors, you were able to have a very realistic simulation. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I have to I have to thank you, too, because Mac Power Users is what how I learned about a lot of these tools. So when I got in there, I was suggesting things like Hazel and Text Expander to be able to do things like move the move the video files around. And if this then that to send the delayed emails to different social media websites as well. So. Uh, I, I don't think I could have um, done it without uh, Mac Power users. Well, that's pretty um, that's pretty generous of you. So thank you. <laughs> so looking at this this experience, um, what do you think about you know the future of a manned trip to Mars? Well, I mean, I think just about everybody uh, is seeing kind of the increase in the number of articles written about Mars, and 
you know, there's companies like Mars One who that's kind of the social media style um, Mars mission that they're uh, trying to send people. And I think that companies like SpaceX and NASA both have the best chances of doing a successful mission. And, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of time and funding and getting the right kind of political leaders that will support this type of initiative. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's going to happen, I think, within our own lifetimes. And uh, as much as possible, I want to be part of that process. So this was just one step for me. And people often ask me, you know, would you sign up for this one-way trip? And I, you know, I have to say for the one-way trip, absolutely not. That's not kind of on the schedule. But uh, if it was a return mission, and I think that those will be likely, you know, in the 2030s, then definitely I'm going to be keeping my eye out for when the Canadian Space Agency does a recruitment and I'll be one of the first people to apply. Well, you certainly have the experience at this point, having lived in a dome for four months. Um, uh, uh, let's take a minute and talk a little bit about the academic stuff you do, because you just got your PhD. So in addition to being a simulated spaceman, you are also a, an actual PhD graduate. So uh, and I know that you did a lot of that with your Mac as well. And uh, so I think for the uh, for those f folks out there in academia, we're going to turn this into a mini workflow uh, portion as well. This interview before we do that, let's uh, take a minute, though, talk about our last sponsor. And that is our friends over at SaneBox. Um, SaneBox is the preferred service in our, in both Katie and I's opinion for managing email. Uh, the, the problem with email is that you get so much of it. It's very hard to organize it and sort it and keep track of what's really important and what's not. Well, SaneBox does that for you. It takes a look at the email that's coming in. It looks at who's it from and what's in the subject line. And from there, it can do some really amazing things. Like it can take email that's not that important and put it into a separate box for you called Sane Later. So imagine waking up in the morning, instead of having 100 emails, you have seven. And the seven are the ones that you really needed to read and deal with first thing in the morning. SaneBox has more services, though. You can also create these custom boxes to send things in later. So if you have something you want to go, uh, for instance, uh, from a certain client, you can have it just go there. Or if you want to have things that are related to purchases or uh, people trying to sell you stuff on the Internet, they can create a special SaneBox for that. The point is, uh, the SaneBox filters are going to do all this work for you so you can manage your email in a way that makes a lot more sense and is more sane. They even have a thing called the same black hole where you can unsubscribe with one click and drop an email into this black hole and you're never going to see it again. In addition to that, they've got a snooze feature where you can take an email and you can put it off. For instance, right before we started recording the show today, I put a bunch of my emails related to my law gig into my snooze folder for tomorrow because I'm done with today being a lawyer. I'm not going to think about it anymore. It's all going to show up first thing for me tomorrow morning. But you could also delay it three hours or you could delay it two days or a week. It just depends on what you're, you're going to, you know, when you need the time. Uh, they also have the same reminders function that can send you a reminder if you write an email to someone and you don't get a reply back. All of this is included with the one, one service. Um, they're also a very responsive company. One of the things I've noticed with SaneBox is that uh, occasionally I hear from a listener who uses it and gives me this story about how much they love it. One listener wrote me and said he was unhappy with one of the attachment handling services of SaneBox. He wrote the developers. They added a feature to SaneBox, essentially in response to his email. In two weeks, they had fixed or enhanced the service just for this person, and now it's applicable for everybody that's out there. All you can get, you can get into this for as low as $4 a month. It depends on, you know, how many accounts you have. There's a 14-day free trial. And if you go to SaneBox.com slash MPU, 
um, you can save $10 on any plan. So that's sanebox.com slash MPU for Mac Power users, and you can save $10 on any plan. We have had, and I've talked about this in the past in the show, the highest um, subscriber conversion rate of anybody they've ever advertised through. And that's because the listeners of our show are the people out there that really do have trouble keeping up with the email. They need it to help them out. Samebox can do that for you. So go check it out. Once again, samebox.com slash MPU. So Ross, let's let's talk a little bit about your your workflows for writing your thesis and and all of that. Now you were doing some of that while you were on Mars, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, in preparation for going to the simulated Mars experience, I actually finished up my data collection and I intended to to try and complete my thesis during the Mars experience. Now, while that didn't happen, I basically had to prepare kind of all the tools that I'd be using. And I got quite a bit of the way through the writing process um, while I was in the habitat. And uh, I was using, uh, for for the academic writing anyway, um, LaTeX. And of course, that consists of downloading the MacTech package and then some kind of a LaTeX editor. So a couple of the editors that I tried... um, TechPad was a really interesting app, and that one is for the iPhone, iPad, and for the Mac. And what's really cool about TechPad, um, because LaTeX is kind of like a compiler for writing a document, you can't actually create a LaTeX document on your iPhone or iPad. But what TechPad have done is they've set up a service that you can send your LaTeX code to them, and they'll run it through the kind of LaTeX compiler and then send you back a PDF uh, of the results. So I I was using that for a little while, but it was actually the bottleneck was my supervisor and he was not the kind of guy that liked editing um, raw LaTeX code. So we found uh, an open source cross-platform editor called Lix and Lix is kind of a a halfway between um, Microsoft Word and just raw LaTeX code. So you can actually write um, a document completely in Lix and then run it through a LaTeX compiler, and it will produce a result. And then you can go ahead and add things into the LaTeX code, um, like the mathematical functions and all the citations and bibliography. And Lix actually hides, kind of tidies up the uh, how the code looks so that it's not overwhelming for someone who's never done kind of raw LaTeX code um, to do that. And because it was cross-platform, my supervisor on his Windows machine Um, we just had a shared folder. He could open my thesis at any given point, look at the changes that I'd made and then approve or, or recommend, you know, changes here and there. And, and I would see that the next time I I opened up my editor on my Mac. We had, um, we talked about LaTeX recently with um, the show with Eddie Smith and uh, we had several listeners write in to talk about Lix and it's printed, it's spelled L Y X if you're looking for it on the web. But the, um, there are a lot of Mac power users, listeners that, that recommend that application. Now, did yeah. I was going to say on on one hand, you would think that hey, I'm I'm going away into this habitat for four months. I'll I'll have a lot of time to work on my thesis, no problem. But I would also imagine that that created some challenges as well. You know, the main challenge for writing the thesis was actually I alluded it to I alluded to it before. It was the altitude for me that it was very difficult to do any kind of sit down and focus tasks. So writing the surveys and writing emails, those were kind of the limit as far as what I was capable of sitting down and doing at any given time. So when it came to writing my thesis, I really struggled with kind of the creative um, writing blocks of text for the introduction and experimental sections. What I did manage to finish was all the chapters that were based on papers that I'd written. 
So inserting images and copying text over and doing copy editing on those things, that's basically what I was able to do within the habitat. Uh, and after the mission completed, my main focus after the fact was just finishing up some last minute experiments and then writing up those more difficult portions. It's interesting um, with respect to that. They, so they didn't pressurize the dome, right? No, but if you imagine that you were actually on Mars, Mars's atmosphere is about 1% the pressure of Earth's atmosphere. So the shape of the dome would probably be about the same in this hemispherical kind of geodesic shape. And uh, the pressure within the dome would be used to keep that shape constant. So you could pressurize it to one atmosphere or more likely you'd pressurize it just to, um, I don't know, some fraction of, of that where the oxygen content, maybe not pure oxygen, but say 40% of Earth's atmosphere where half of that was oxygen. And then you get the 21% that you need for human life. It's just, um, it's just interesting to me that the astronauts on Mars will actually have a better, they'll have an advantage in that regard that the oxygen content will be higher than what you had at, at altitude. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, everybody's a little bit different in terms of how they adapt to altitude. So I tend to put myself in the category of um, poor adaptation to to low, low pressures. Um, but the other crew members didn't have too much of a problem. And honestly, when it came to things like fitness and and doing spacewalks, I didn't really notice a difference. But where I really did notice a difference was any of the intellectual activities that I, I'm used to doing. You also said you used Pixelmator uh, with respect to your thesis writing. Yeah, that's right. So um, I was using uh, mathematical suites like Mathematica to do the analysis on my data sets. And they would generate images that I then import into Pixelmator and kind of do the final um, go over to make them into, you know, good scientific figures. And, you know, I first started out using Adobe Illustrator, but of course, if you have to renew the licenses on that, it becomes quite expensive for a student to do. So when Pixelmator came out with, I think, their $30 promotion, uh, I jumped on board and learned the tool set there, and I haven't looked back. Pixelmator is really kind of a perfect solution for um, even just um, editing photos, but I found it very useful in just touching up my my graphs for my thesis. And then uh, you said you also used Papers, too. Yeah, that's right. So um, I know that uh, we've been discussing a lot of PDF management, and especially in the Academic Workflows show, we talked about um, some of the tools uh, that that are used there. So the tool that I used primarily was Papers 2, and this is kind of before there was this big upgrade to Papers 3. So I uh, I basically, you, Papers 2 allows you to organize your papers into folders, so I would have this kind of big central repository. Think of it more mostly like iTunes, actually that you have this central repository with all your music or all your papers, and then you can make playlists. So within Papers 2, I'd make a playlist that was, you know, my um, my thesis playlist, and all the references in my thesis had, you know, um, a symlink in, in the playlist there. So then I could just quickly kind of do an export um, to create a citation file um, using software called Bibdesk, and, you know, LaTeX is really good at kind of automatic management management of those citations. So uh, Papers 2 is really, really great. And early on, I also had papers on my iPad and iPhone, and I used that, you know, to kind of skim through PDFs on the go as well. And since then, I've switched over to kind of the PDF pen system uh, for the on the go management. You know, it's funny, I because Papers 3 came out and uh, there was a, um, 
I, I recently linked to Papers 3, and I said, you know, I made the comment offhand at Max Sparky, and I'm going to look into this because everybody's talking about it, and I'm thinking it might be a solution for legal research management of documents. And and I got a lot of email from people that were not happy with Papers 3. I didn't realize it's kind of controversial, their upgrade. Well, I think it has something to do that that management switched over. They were acquired by someone. I don't know the details offhand, but... I, you know, Papers 2 was an incredibly powerful um, system, and, you know, the first upgrade to Papers 3 was really just kind of a surface redesign that made it look more like the iOS 7 and Yosemite um, flattening. So a lot of people didn't see the need to upgrade because all the features were the same, but it was a little harder to actually navigate through the Papers 3 interface. Well, well, Ross... Thank you so much for writing me at the beginning and telling me you were going to Mars with Mac Power Users episodes on your hard drive. That just made me, it thrilled me. It's you know, absolutely even though I know amazing. It's, I even knew, I knew it was just a simulation, but it just, it, it was, uh, then when I heard you're using some of the stuff we've talked about in the simulation, uh, that thrilled me just as well. Uh, you know, we had a, um, uh, another listener who was at NASA at one point wrote me saying they were using some of the concepts from the paperless book that I wrote and developing their paperless systems. And you just have to understand since I was a very little boy, NASA to me has been like it, you know? So anything that, that those guys do, I am, I'm so excited. I think I talked already on the show about the, um, the jumpsuit that I had when I was a little boy, I got when I went to Florida that I wore. I think you talked about that on Skip's episode. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, my, uh, my sister was recently teasing me about that. I think I'm going to have to get an actual one for an adult. I think I just have to go there, but uh, either way, um, it's just great that you were able to use some of that stuff and thanks for sharing it all with us and congratulations on getting your PhD. That's such an accomplishment. And, and I can't wait to hear all the amazing things you do. Uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes. There's a, there's a real great space.com article on, on Ross and his team as they left their four month, um, mission. And it's very, it's kind of cute, but it's also kind of informative as well. And I'm going to make sure I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Everybody go check it out. And Ross, where can they go find out more about what you're up to? Well, I'm pretty easy to find online, uh, but if you want uh, a direct link to my blog, just go to spincrisis.com, and you can find me at spincrisis on just about any other service online. That makes it easy. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, um, and I I can't wait for... Uh, the response from our listeners about this. I know we got so much feedback about uh, Skip's episode. And I, I think like David, a lot of our listeners uh, grew up loving NASA and are, are really invigorated about uh, the space program and the interest in Mars now. So I, I know I am. It's, it's, it's what's next. I'm glad I'm glad you could be a part of that. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and thanks to our listeners for joining us. We'll have links to everything here uh, in the show notes, which you can find on our website at MacPowerUsers.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. The show is MacPowerUsers. David is at MacSparky. I'm at Katie Floyd. And uh, Ross, you want to share your Twitter handle again? Sure. Just at Spin Crisis. At Spin Crisis. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. And we'll talk to you soon.